Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us here tonight as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. Peter, a section of the book of Revelation that is really intriguing on a number of different levels. Uh, one of those passages where, you know, the, the word revelation, uh, the, the old term apoc apocalypse, uh, carries the idea of unveiling. We're going to see tonight in Revelation, aren't we, that there's veiling and unveiling going on. Yeah, that's right. Not everything is revealed to us right now. Yes. <laughs> uh, the majority of things are, but there are still some secret things that we're yet to find out, which I think is really important to understand because I think we could fall into a couple errors when it comes to this book where some people read this book and they're like, it's total nonsense. There's nothing you can really make out of this. It's totally symbolic, metaphoric. It's just not even worth reading. It's not even worth getting into. But then the other side of the spectrum, I think there are people who are just so overly dogmatic about it where they're like, I understand every syllable of yes, this. And yes. I know exactly how it's going to happen. I know exactly who the Antichrist is. I know exactly when the rapture is going to happen. And that overly dogmatic view, I think, is equally destructive for the church. Yeah. And, and when people you know, hear something like this, like there are aspects of the book of Revelation that we won't get uh, until we see it all in the rearview mirror in a sense. It's going to make complete sense to us, obviously, when we're in, in heaven. They get a little worried about that a, a bit. Well, you know, is, is God holding out on us? You know, why isn't he telling us everything? We're going to see a classic example where God does just that. He just says, no, don't reveal this quite yet. But when we stop and think about our lives, uh, you know, I, I always go back. I, I wonder sometimes if when it's all said and done, you know, we all have a life verse that we think uh, applies to us and kind of tells the story. You know, I'd like to think my life verse is, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. But I really think that when it's all said and done, <laughs> my life verse may end up being from John 16, where Jesus said to his disciples, I have so much more to tell you, but you can't bear it now. Uh, I'd love to tell you more, but it would just completely blow your mind. And uh, I think that's really what we get into here in Revelation chapter 10. You know, it begins in verse 1 where we get into the first big mystery. And by the way, not only are we going to see mysteries in this section of Scripture, fair share of controversies right. as well. Uh, but we're going to give you all the data. You can make up your mind at home. Uh, Revelation chapter 10 says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud roar as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea that the, and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, it's really interesting because as we go into Revelation chapter 10, 
Revelation 9, things were getting pretty wild and intense. Uh, you know, we, we see, for instance, the locusts released from the bottomless pit. They're turned loose on humanity and uh, able to sting people. They will suffer from these stings in such agony. They will seek death and not be able to die for five months. You know, I mean, uh, this, this being released from the abyss, we are told that when Jesus uh, cast the uh, three to 6,000 demons out of the man at uh, Gadara, uh, they begged Jesus not to send them into this abuso, into this bottomless pit. So apparently it's a really rough neighborhood even for demons. But they're turned loose, and uh, they have their way. But then following that, you know, you go, well, you know, at least that particular plague passed. Well, we're getting warmed up because we saw four angels who had been prepared for that day and hour and month and year were released from their holding place at the great river Euphrates to kill a third of mankind. And uh, they have the 200 million man army behind them, whether that's 200 million demons, 200 million regular human beings possessed by demons. Uh, once again, we'll find out when we get there. But uh, understand something, even after, now a third of mankind has been wiped out, a fourth of mankind has been wiped out, seven-twelfths of mankind has been wiped out at this point, but the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues and did not repent of the works of their hands. They should not worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murder or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, if I'm the Lord at this point, and let's all give thanks that I'm not the Lord at, at any point. Uh, if I'm the Lord at this point, I'd be going, mm, I think we've given them enough chances. Uh, if they're not getting it by now, they're just not going to get it. Let's just turn the... Uh, volume up to 11 and be done with all this. But God doesn't do that, does it? No, he doesn't. So if you guys have been with us in the book of Revelation, it's broken up into three different parts, almost like acts of a movie. And each act or each part is signified by a different type of what we call judgments. So it began with what we call the seal judgments, and now we're going into the trumpet judgments, and it's going to finish off the third act, the climax, is going to be the bold judgments where things are going to get really nasty on the earth. But in between these sections, there's this amazing and incredible outpouring of mercy that happens. So God focuses, He's uh, notice what he's doing with John. He's guiding John's eyes. He's guiding him to see particular things. So we don't exactly know how successive these things are happening. Is it just like one after the other? Is it like every day another trumpet's blowing? Or We don't really know, but God is, is moving John's focus in a particular way so that he highlights particular things. And so as judgment kind of heats up, God actually starts to turn up his rescue plan, if you want to put it that way. So the uh, judgments are becoming much more, you could say, chaotic and crazy and supernatural, but God's salvation and his means of saving people are equally being turned up. And in the next chapter, we're going to get some really like rock star prophets coming on the scene, yes. you know? Yeah. And so God gives these interesting pauses throughout this book, waiting for people to get the picture, waiting for people to understand 
recognize who you're dealing with. I am the God of the earth. I've given you these gifts. I could take them away. Repent. And we are aware in the previous chapters that there will be a massive amount of people. John says more than you can number that are going to repent during this time. But the world itself, the world as a whole, will not. Yeah, yeah. Planet Earth is going to be, as they used to say, taking it heavy uh, during this time. And so this interlude, this break in the action, if you will, this this gracious opportunity to respond and come to the Lord, really is detailed not just in chapter 10, but really into chapter 11. It is kind of mankind's last hurrah as far as saying, uh, you know, the, the bus is leaving. You better be on it as far as uh, your hope of heaven is concerned. But notice it says, I, st- I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Now notice how this angel is described. And a rainbow uh, was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea, left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Now, that's a pretty impressive attention-getting call there. I don't know if you've ever been on the business end of a lion roaring, but uh, when I was in junior college in California uh, running track, we'd kill time between our last class and track practice by playing softball. Well, at my junior college there, Moorpark Community College, they had this world-famous program called the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program, or EDEM for short. And uh, it would train people to work with exotic animals. And uh, I was playing uh, right field, I think, in the softball game. A guy hit a ball over my head, and I went running, and the ball went right up to the edge of the EDEM compound. And I reached down to pick up the softball, and I looked up, and on the other side of the fence in the Edom uh, compound was this alpha male lion. I I mean, just on the other side of this fence, and it's staring at me, and I'm staring at it. I mean, I'm about that far away, and it looks at me, and it lets out this roar. Now, I want to tell you, I was running track at that time, but I don't think I ran a faster 100 meters in my life. It was like, you win! (laughs) Uh, you know, a lion's roar, you know, we, we you know, see the MGM movie roar, you know, that sort of thing. And, and it's not, but when you are face to face with that, it is definitely and decidedly something that gets your attention. Uh, you know, and it's, it's very interesting. We see this angelic creature, another mighty angel. But Peter, isn't there a debate about whether this is an angel or perhaps someone more? Yeah, there is. So when it comes to angel, you know, Sean likes to mention this and reiterate it to people often because in our culture we kind of forget what that word means. Angel just means messenger, right? right? That That's all that word means. And so sometimes actually humans are referred to as angels. And as you've gone through this book, in the beginning you notice that Jesus holds uh, I'm sorry, there, there are seven angels attached to the churches, right. and most people believe that those actually are the pastors of those churches, not some actual celestial being. And because of that word and the flexibility of it, actually there are instances where Jesus, the Son of God, makes appearances in the Old Testament, and he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Right. And oftentimes, like for instance, in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham actually interacts with this angelic character and then calls him Yahweh, right, yeah. in the middle of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Samson's parents yeah. uh, being given the, the message that they were going to have a bouncing baby boy after being childless. 
you know, first Samson's mom thinks that it's just a man of God, a prophet. Right. right. But then there's something more about him. Mm-hmm. Calls Manoah, Samson's father, over, and uh, you know they ask him his name, and he goes, "Why should, do you ask my name? Because it's wonderful." Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes, "If you're going to offer a sacrifice, offer it to God." So they offer the sacrifice in this angel of the Lord, as he's referred to there, goes up in the sacrifice, and Manoah and his wife freak out, and they go, (laughs) oh my gosh, we're still alive, we've seen God, and we've lived. Right. So, Exactly, and that actually speaks to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, his role within the Godhead. So in John chapter 1, verse 18, John says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known, or revealed him to us. So one of the roles of the Son of God, both in the Old and New Covenant, is to make God known, is to exegete him, reveal him to human beings. So he wraps himself in forms that we can perceive without dying. You know, right. And that's kind of one of the things he does. And because of that, he does fulfill the role of what we would call a messenger. And so don't be thrown off when people say, like, oh, this is, it says very clearly it's an angel. Well, maybe not because the Son of God has gone by the title of angel before or messenger before. Now, and we have to be careful about this because the cultist who knocks on your door on Saturday morning will try to tell you that's all Jesus is. He's not God. He's just an angel. And that's not what you're saying. No, no, absolutely not. So uh, when we say that the Son of God is uh, functions as an angel for the Godhead, that's just speaking to his job occupation within the Trinity, if you want to what put it that What he's doing way. at that particular time. Exactly. Not his essential nature. Exactly. And the essential nature of this particular character is pretty impressive. Um, you know, again, we see him clothed with a cloud uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration. We know that in Matthew uh, chapter 17, uh, when uh, Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah, suddenly the cloud, the presence of God came upon the mountain, the idea of the Shekinah glory of God there. A rainbow was on his head. We see in the beginning of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, one sitting on a throne, an emerald rainbow is about around the throne, a picture of God's everlasting promise of life uh, that he gives to us. Uh, his face was like the sun, again, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' face began to shine in just that way. Read through the account in Matthew chapter 17 if you want to read a mind blower uh, of an encounter with Jesus. His feet like pillars of fire, and he had a little book open in his hand. Now, the idea of his feet like pillars of fire, some have likened this back to Jesus being described in Revelation chapter 1 as having feet like bronze heated in a furnace. And they would say that this is the same Kind of reference here, and so or even would, like yeah. in the Exodus, where God actually manifests His presence to the people of Israel as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So right, yeah. right. So uh, you know, I, I crib notes here from <laughs> Chuck Smith. Uh, he says the word angel means messenger. Uh, we usually think of angels as the spirit beings who were created by God as ministering spirits. But in the Bible, sometimes people are described as angels, and Jesus Christ appears often in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. He says, I personally believe that the messenger described here is none other than Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. He is clothed with a cloud. Jesus himself said he would return in clouds. The description is much like the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Also, he's holding a book, which is probably the scroll he took in Revelation 5. 
Therefore, it is reasonable to believe that this mighty angel is Jesus himself. That's great, but I don't really believe that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> so oh, oh. why don't we think, now that we've set you off and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus. We're all convinced. Let's, let's roll on. What's the hang-up here? Uh, there's actually a couple hang-ups for, for me. And, you know, no, yeah, no offense to, to the, uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ who are legitimate believers, who are looking at this passage in sincerity. And, and all props, yeah. you know, I mean, to Chuck Smith. Right. Uh, you know, with his reward in heaven. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, being a part of Calvary Chapel doesn't mean that we are smithereens. Right. <laughs> that we just take everything Chuck said, and that's gospel and, and so on. So we, we, can we can disagree on the non-essentials, <laughs> but go ahead. Exactly. So All, all that disclaimer, <laughs> uh, boy, we're prohibited. Your mileage may vary, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, so there's actually a couple problems with it, as I mentioned. The first one is that Jesus has actually already showed up in this book. And it's not just that the presentation of Christ is different here than it was earlier on. As you mentioned, there are similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. Uh, but that doesn't, in and of itself, prove it's not Jesus. Another important point is that when Jesus did appear, though, John recognized him as Jesus. He called right. him the Lamb who slain before the, the, the foundations of the world. And he also, when Jesus laid a hand on him in the beginning, he immediately recognized him as Lord, as Jesus. He doesn't do that here. So that is a little weird. It's not definitive proof, but it's a little weird. Secondly, this angel gives praise to God for creation. This is also weird because Jesus is creator. Yeah. In John chapter 1, uh, verse 3, it says, All things were made by him, speaking of Jesus, and not one thing was made that was made except with him. So right. you have this idea of this angel kind of separating himself or distinguishing himself from God's cre creative attributes, which is not something you would really expect from Jesus, not really something you would expect him to say. Yeah, and, and you know, I, in a sense, when I study this, uh, I know this might really be unsatisfying to those who are on either side. No, it's definitely an angel. No, it's definitely Jesus. But I, I kind of split the difference, in a sense, uh, looking at this, because when we take a look at angels, particularly the angelic beings, like the four living creatures before the throne, we discover that they have attributes to them. You know, the four living creatures, for instance, one looked like a man, one looked like an ox, one looked like a flying eagle, another looked like a, a lion. All of these are attributes, in a sense, of Jesus. And uh, when we see angels, especially a mighty angel like this, angels do their best work like we do our best work as believers when we reflect the attributes of God to the world. Now, now this is, this is what I, I mean by this. You know, we see these angelic creatures in, in Romans chapter, I mean, in Revelation chapter 4, and they're reflecting the attributes uh, of God. But we are called to do something very, very similar. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, we are told, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We as human beings are unique image bearers of God. But it doesn't mean that angels can't reflect attributes and parts of the image of God as well. Uh, and, and so the, the reason that I come down on this, and I just say this is an angel, it's a mighty angel, and it's an angel that really uniquely reflects the attributes of God in, in a very clear and powerful way. 
is not just because of the reasons that you mentioned there, but also uh, in the opening sentence, it says, I saw another mighty angel coming down. Now, the word another there is pretty key in the original language. I know I've told you guys many, many times, if anybody tries to say, now you can't understand this passage unless you understand the original language, uh, they're probably woofing at you. But understanding the original language can be really helpful in trying to unveil a mystery like this. I feel like Columbo. There's just one thing that bothers me here. Uh, I saw another mighty angel. The word another there, there's two words for another in the original language. One is the word heteros. We get our term heterosexual from it. It means another of a different kind. The other is alos, which means another of the same kind. The specific word used here is alos. I saw still another mighty angel. Well, what kind of angels have we seen where this would be one of another uh, of a similar category? Well, it's been the angels that are blowing these trumpets. Uh, the angels have been instrumental in these various judgments. An angel comes and says, the sixth angel sounded, we are told, in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 13. We're going to see uh, in Revelation chapter 11, the seventh angel is going to sound. And so when we see another mighty angel, another of the same category, it's not saying, well, time out, Jesus on the scene here, angels take a step back. Uh, we're seeing another of that same category here. So I do believe that this is a mighty angel. I do believe that his glory, like our glory, is reflecting the very image and likeness of God uh, in, in a very powerful way. And I love this because we sometimes can make the Christian life so complex. We, we can make our job description as believers uh, you know, like uh, one of those, you know, flow charts and diagrams and, you know, you got to have 82 pages to figure out what you're going to do in a day. You want to know what the Lord wants you to do? The Lord wants you to reflect his reality in this world. He wants to fill you with his spirit so that people don't see you talking about Jesus, but they see you when you talk reflecting who Jesus is. You know, the, the, the old uh, wristband fad that was out. What would Jesus do? Well, that's a good place to start, but we need to add to that. Okay, in my day, what would Jesus do? In my day, what would Jesus say? Uh, how, what would Jesus do in this conflict situation? What would Jesus do uh, ethically in business? What would Jesus do if he lived in my neighborhood? What would Jesus do if uh, his next-door neighbor had a dog that was barking towards all hours of the morning. You know, asking that question constantly and the easy stuff, the tough stuff, the the mundane stuff, and even the massive stuff, what would Jesus do in a situation where, say, I'm watching a loved one pass away and there's nothing I can do about it? What would he do? Well, he'd lean on the strength of the Father. And, And when we understand that, that we are here not just to survive with our salvation intact, but to reflect the reality and presence of God in this world, that that is the high and holy privilege. That's what God created man to be way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the image and likeness of God, he made them. In the fall, that image and likeness was marred. It wasn't destroyed, but it was marred uh, almost beyond recognition. God makes us a new creation in Christ, and he wants us to be exhibit A. The world can look at it and say, you know, I, I see Jesus in that person. Yeah, and just a couple uh, points on that that I find really fascinating. 
uh, this idea of being image bearers of God and what it really means. Uh, the first one is that it definitely distinguishes Christianity from any other religion or worldview. So there's a reason why when the works of the saints are described within the scriptures, it's utilized, it utilizes a metaphor of fruit, almost always. Galatians 5, John chapter 15, right. Jeremiah chapter 17, Psalm chapter 1, right, all over the Bible. It utilized this metaphor of growing up into fruit. Right. And the reason why that's so important is because the Bible and Christ in you is really not as concerned with your quantity of works, Meaning, if you look at the Old Testament and you look at the, the guys and gals <laughs> that God chooses and is like, these guys are awesome. We look at it, we read it like, really? Samson? Really, God? You know, like, yeah, you know. I, I used to think <laughs> so, they were a lot more awesome until I got to know them. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> Never kind meet of your like, heroes. Uh, yeah. hanging out in the church. I used to think church people were awesome until I got to know them. Exactly. Yeah, so. <laughs> and it, it, it befuddles a lot of people. They're like, why would God choose these people? And why does he call someone like David a man after his own heart with all of his flaws and his character mistakes and these massive issues that he had in his life? Adultery with uh, when he was married to multiple women, which he shouldn't have been, and his, his failures as a father. Yeah. yeah, you know, like... All these immense flaws in his character, yet he calls him a man after his own heart, is because God doesn't necessarily judge based on our quantity of works. God doesn't have a counter for every single time you do something good and a counter for every time you do something bad, and you better hope that the good outweighs the bad. That's more Islam, isn't it? That's more yeah, Islam yeah, and yeah. Santa Claus. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's not, yeah. But it's not the true living God. Yeah. right? The idea of God's goal in your life, what is he up to? Right. And I know you talk about this a lot on the pulpit and, you know, we talk about it often as pastors because this is like the number one question. What is God up to in my life? What right. does he want me to do? Right. And First Thessalonians 3 answers that question. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you might be able to uh, you might be able to control your vessel in honor and glory to his respect. Right. right. So this idea of what is God up to in my life? It's not like he's checking off good deeds and bad deeds. God's entire program in my life is to change my character. Yeah. He wants to make me someone new. So I'm not always having to critically think like, do I think Jesus would want me to do this? Do I think Jesus would want me to kill this person or help them out? Like, I don't, I don't really know. You know, like, it's not about that. This is what the Bible means when it says you're not under the law, you're under grace. It means that to the truly sanctified person, which none of us are there yet, but to the truly sanctified person, you don't need a law. You don't need anyone to tell you what to do. Why? Because your nature will be so in line with God's, you will naturally want to do what is right, and you will recognize the impulses that are wrong. You don't need someone to tell you that. You will just naturally know it. This is the state that man had in the garden. There was no law given to Adam and Eve in the garden, other than don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Other than that, there was no law given because just naturally they did the right thing without having to be told. This is what God wants to do within our lives. That's what he is about. A transition, or as Paul usually puts it, a transformation from the inside out to make us a totally different creature, a totally yeah. different being than the one that we were born into. Renewing the image of God and actually destroying or undoing the fall so that we become like Christ. Right, and, and I heard it uh, put this way, uh, and it really stuck with me. God is not so concerned with our occupation as much as our transformation. And uh, that's not to say that we are not his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Uh, I'm firmly convinced the Bible is God's basic instructions before leaving earth. If I want to know how I can honor God in a particular situation, I need to know God's word. And that's got to inform my decisions. But the essence of the difference, and I hope you guys grasp this, between the Christian life and any other religion you want to name, is any religion will give you a list as long as your arm of to-dos and to-don'ts and eat this and don't eat that and, you know, go here and be this day, you got to do that and the other. And unfortunately for a lot of Christians, their Christian life experience isn't really decidedly much different than anybody who's just a member of a major religion. They, they just have sort of a different figurehead at, at the, the end of the rainbow. But God desires to do a work of transformation in our lives supernaturally, that, that, that moment by moment, as we saw, we were being transformed to the image of Jesus from glory to glory, just as by the Lord, the Spirit. And, and the more that that happens, you know, the more we reflect Jesus, the, the more the world sees. That's why uh, it's so interesting to me that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my evangelists in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. You will be my caregivers. You will be my church planters. You will be my Bible uh, teachers. You will, you know, name, you know, you'll be my missionaries. No, the thing he said was what? You will be my what? Witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. What is a witness? but someone who has had personal experience with the true and living God. So much so that it's so reflected that in Acts chapter 4, even Jesus' bitterest enemies looked at Peter and John, saw they were uneducated and untrained, and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. Can you imagine what a headache that was for these guys? We killed that Jesus. Now we've got all these Jesuses running around out there. He's, he's, He's multiplied his character in all these people. Yes, yeah. I mean, what a headache if you're trying to put an end to Christianity. We've got to be so careful, gang, that our relationship with God is just that. Yeah. And, and, one, and one of the questions I, I find myself coming back to is saying, is there anything going on in my life that is inexplicable apart from the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit upon me? And what's true in the micro in my life individually should be true in the macro here in the church. Great question for anyone who's involved with the church, anyone who's involved in any leadership role in the church, is this. If the Holy Spirit left earth at midnight tonight, what would, what would be different about your life at 1205? Uh, if the Holy Spirit left earth at midnight tonight, how long would it take this church to know the difference? Boy, I, I hope this church would collapse in a heap of ruin if that happened. But we have to be very careful because that's a choice. And religion can creep into our lives on little cat's feet, and we can find ourselves relying on our own righteousness instead of the Lord's. Absolutely. And I, and I feel like, you know, in, in my ministry where we deal with a lot of sexual sin and things like that, I find in the church, I find in a lot of people who attend church this really ethical deficiency, meaning that their their view of sanctification, their view of holiness is only wrapped up in the negative. It's never about positive virtue. 
Meaning it's always about like, well, that's right. (laughs) I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. So I'm a good person. But the idea of practical virtue becoming more courageous, kind, gentle, patient, loving, caring, right? Truthful, you know, all these things. Like Jesus. Like Jesus. That idea of what kind of a person am I becoming doesn't really enter into people's minds. And think about this. This is supposed to be the number one priority for the Christian life. And I, I get the chance to talk to a lot of young people. And unfortunately, you know, I say that like I'm an old guy, like, <laughs> like young, younger people, I guess, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah those uh, young people, <laughs> those youngins out yeah. there, you know, that I get a chance to talk to uh, people my age, my peers, I guess yeah. I could yeah. say it that Filling way. Filling your AARP <laughs> yeah. joke. Here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I get to, I get to talk to a lot of younger people. And one of the things that you notice with younger people is they have a lot of anxiety in their lives, tons of anxiety. And the majority of people in my generation, millennials, and the new generation, Generation Z, the number one anxiety that they have is this thing called fear of missing out, meaning that they're afraid to commit to any particular one thing because they're afraid that they're going to miss out on something better. So they don't want to get married. They don't want to get an occupation. They don't want to do these things that are necessary. And some of the older generations have misunderstood this as a lack of will, Meaning these lazy millennials, they just, when are they going to get their act together? Just pick something and do it. The, the reason why they're struggling so much is not because of an apathy or a laziness per se. Some of them it is. But it's not necessarily a laziness or an apathy. It's actually the opposite. They care so much about it that they're terrified of making the wrong decision. And so it paralyzes them. Yeah. Paralysis by analysis. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So they end up becoming very aimless. But the reason why they're aimless is not because, again, it's not because of apathy. It's the opposite. They care so much about it that they're not choosing anything because, again, they're terrified that whatever they choose, I'm going to be stuck with. And is it really going to measure up? Is it really going to live up to my expectations of being the person that I want to be? And the important thing to understand about this whole image of God scenario that we're talking about, you know, we look at these angels in the Bible. If you ever look at it and be like, doesn't that job sound boring? You know, these four living creatures, they're just flying around God endlessly singing his praises. Yeah, they've got one song they sing all the time. Learn a new tune, guys. You know, like learn a new word. You know, it's just just holy over and over again. You know, we think that's that's boring. How unfulfilling. And and most people, again, in my generation, the generation prior, what they really want is they want to make an impact. They want to make an impact and they detail their life based on impact. And they're so afraid, again, that they're not going to make enough of a dent in the world. So their heroes are like Internet influencers with all these people following. Oh, there's someone who's making an impact. Exactly. People who look up to them, people who who see them as more. And because of that, they're actually running away from the more fundamental roles that we've traditionally had. Husband, wife, father, mother. They run away from these things because they don't just want to influence one or two people. They want to influence massive quantities of people. And they don't want to be held down by things that might prevent them from doing that. And so, again, they're so afraid that they don't make commitments. This passage, passages like this in the book of Revelation, should show us why do we find all these things so frightening, so anxiety-producing, and why are we so dissatisfied with whatever we get? Because whatever career you get, I guarantee you, you will not be happy with it. Jim Carrey, pretty famous dude. 
Uh, he once said, I wish that everybody could become as wealthy and popular as I am so they will realize it doesn't solve anything. <laughs> oh, you know, wow. so you, you have the yeah, you have this idea. <laughs> Talk about a guy who's making an impact. You know, he has he's wealthy. He's got he can make a movie and people will go see it. Millions of people will go see it, even if it's something foolish and silly, which he, he does a lot, you know, and he has this voice. He has this impact on this world. And he looks at it. And he says, vanity, like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, vanity, right. vanity. It's a chasing of the wind. Why? Because what you were created to do, your job is actually the most important job in the universe, your job is to reflect God. That's your job. When it calls us image bearers, I love what you said earlier, it's not that other creatures can't reflect God's image. In fact, all of them do. When you look at the universe, for instance, why is it so expansive? Well, because God is vast and expansive. Why do we have so much power in the universe, like suns and quasars and all these supernovas and crazy How much stuff? beauty there is in the universe. Because yeah. God is the beautiful God. Yeah. Why is there life on this planet? Because he's the living God, yeah. right? Why are there thinking creatures on this planet? Because he's the wise God, right? right? Everything reflects God, but we're just at the peak of that pyramid. We are the number one reflectors of God. That is our role. And when Adam and Eve were fulfilling that role, they were happy. Yeah, They were happy in their little garden, just gardening, right? Now, that's all they were doing. And they were happy and they had no shame and they had no fear. And then exactly what happened, Satan put in their minds, well, is reflecting God really the thing that you want to do forever? What if you could create a new system of morality that's better than God's? What if you could just, instead of reflecting God, what if you could reflect yourself? What if it could be all about you? Wouldn't that be great? And they bought into the lie, and the second that they bought into the lie, what immediately entered into their hearts? Shame. Shame. I don't measure up. That's the first thought that man had prior to the uh, post-fall. Right. Is shame over what they were. And then, following on the, the foothills, foot uh, heels of shame, mm -hmm. came relational breakdown right. and a lack of personal fulfillment. Yeah. You'll work the soil by the sweat of your brow, and it'll only produce thorns and thistles for you. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, when we're thinking about what we're trying to do, if you're looking at your list of goals in life, you know, no matter what stage of life you're in, you always have like a list of goals. If at the top of it is not, I want to get closer to God. That's my goal for this year. I want to get closer to God, and I want to reflect his nature more. Whatever you put on top of that list, if it's above that, it will never satisfy you. It will never fulfill you. It will always come up short and come up empty. That's why New Year's resolutions are so vacuous, you know? Again, a lot of people are like, well, it's because, you know, people are just lazy. They got no commitment. They got no willpower anymore. Yeah. Again, part of it, you're right. But another big part of it is they start doing it and they're like, okay, I tried it. You know, get in shape. Okay, I, I got kind of in shape this year. Yeah, I'm going to try something it, it, different. It's the, uh, the line from that great philosopher Stephen Wright, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, you, know you, you bring you along with you. Exactly. Yeah. So no matter what circumstances you shift in your life, if you're not transforming, if that's not what's happening in your life, it will be vacuous. It will be empty. You were made for more than this. You were made to make an impact. But that impact is going to be astronomical. It's going to be cosmological. It's going to be universal. All of creation, it says in Romans 8, are anticipating. It's, they're on tiptoes waiting for you to be revealed. That's what Paul says. The entire universe, universe is anxiously awaiting for us to be revealed in our final resurrected bodies that perfectly reflect Christ. They are so excited for that. 
That is going to be your impact on the cosmos. But it's not going to happen by you becoming an influencer or having that perfect job or meeting that perfect person. That's not what's going to fulfill you. Your impact is about what you become, not about what you do. Yeah. Yeah, it's transformation. It's not occupation. Exactly. If you remember, don't remember anything else, <laughs> you know, remember that. That's what God is up to in your life. And, and maybe a challenging question is, how much more like Jesus are you now than you were six months ago? I mean, think about that. Are you the same old you? Maybe a little bit more dug in on your preconceived ideas and your well-worn ruts you go through life and, you know, maybe a little more money in the bank. Maybe these days a lot less money. Maybe you got more money, but it's just not worth anything. Um, but are you really reflecting the character of Jesus? You know, uh, yeah, I, I, you know I, I think of that famous passage in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, you know, the, 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 the believer's grid that should guard our minds. Mm -hmm. Finally then, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatever th those things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, mm -hmm. whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, anything worthy of praise, let your mind think on these things. Right. You know, uh, when I've shared, you know, that's a really good, you know, grid to put up in your mind about the stuff you let in your eye gate and your ear gate and the things you dwell on in your mind. People go, oh, man, that's like eight things. How in the world am I going to remember all that? Make it simple. Who is true? Who is lovely? Who is pure? Who is worthy of praise? Who is virtuous? Who is... It's Jesus. And the more you focus on Jesus, the more I focus on Jesus, the more my passion for a particular day is, man, Lord, what does it mean for me to reflect you in this world? What does it mean for you to transform me, you know, so that, that you know, I'm, I'm caught in the act, if you will, uh, of being a Christian? Boy, that can just do such transforming work within our lives. Um, you know, one of the great works that God wants to do in our lives, I believe, is a work of humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And C.S. Lewis made a remark about humility, that uh, there is no greater uh, egotist or proud person in the world than one who thinks he's humble enough. And, and it's almost like it, this, this elusive virtue, because as soon as we pursue humility, and we find ourselves saying, wow, I think I've really arrived, uh, we've lost it. You know, we're completely the opposite. We're, we're hopelessly proud. But when we focus in on that simple job description of just saying, Lord, just transform me into your image, you know, live your life out through me today. And, and however you decide to work that out and what I do and, and where I'm at and, and so on, whether I decide, you know, to come to church or turn on the Internet and watch, watch a study, you know, I just want to do it just flowing my relationship with you. I find that that amazing, elusive quality that C.S. Lewis talked about being like the queen of virtues, the, the, the ultimate, you know, example. Jesus said, uh, you know, again, uh, I am lowly, and, and we believe him. You know, he was, he was humble. He humbled himself and so on. You know, we, we try to grasp at that, and then we lose it. But when we just focus in on the, the Lord transforming us and making us like Christ, suddenly we find out what real humility is. I'm going to use a, a bad illustration here, so, so forgive me. Um, there was a, just a, a marvelous special uh, that was or a series that was put together and, uh, and aired 
uh, a few years back on HBO called Band of Brothers. It was based upon a book by Stephen Ambrose about the airborne uh, paratroopers, uh, Easy Company in World War II. And uh, recently I had a chance to rewatch it. And there's this episode uh, about Easy Company, the Battle of the Bulge. And just out there in Belgium, they're freezing to death. They're dug in in these foxholes. And, uh, you know, they're just trying to survive these artillery uh, bursts that were coming down. And Easy Company had been successful because they'd had great leadership prior to this time. But they got this new lieutenant in who didn't know what he was doing. He was just kind of getting promoted up the ranks, needed some combat experience. This guy would just wander off in the middle of the day, and nobody knew where he was. And this poor uh, staff sergeant didn't know what else to do. So, you know, he was trying to do the things that he figured the lieutenant needed to do. And he was keeping morale up, and he was telling people where to dig their foxholes and how to stay down and what they were going to do and, you know, if the, the Germans came to do this and that and the other. And he's just trying to keep things together. He's just you know, kind of flustered by all of this. And he's so frustrated. He kept going back to command and saying, this guy's going to get us all killed. Um, you know, I don't know what to do. There's nothing we can do about it. He's connected. You're just going to have to make the best of it. So they go into this battle. They're going to try to take this town in Belgium called Foy. And, and they start the assault on Foy. And the Germans have this artillery and these machine guns. And they're just, it's, it's a disaster. And this, this incompetent lieutenant leads them in and he gets there, and he just freezes. He's just sitting behind this, this building trying to dodge bullets, and he just doesn't know what to do. And he's telling, no, go back. And the people up at the front are going, no, you've got to go forward. You're going to get killed. Suddenly, this lieutenant comes out of nowhere, uh, and, and he's just this, this crazy guy, and he just runs straight at the Germans, just straight into them. And the Germans are so taken aback, this guy's running at him. They don't even shoot at him. He just goes running straight by their artillery emplacement and jumps over this other wall and gets these other troops. And then he runs back past the Germans again, and they're just like, oh, like that. So it just turned the whole tide. They won the battle. So afterwards, they're talking about this battle in this bombed-out chapel uh, in the town of Foy. And this lieutenant comes to the staff sergeant, and, uh, you know, he was like, wow, you know, you... You know, you're the hero here. You save the day. He goes, no, I didn't, I didn't win that battle. There was one man who kept morale up. There was one man that kept the company together. There was one man that kept everybody focused. He's the one who won the battle. And the staff sergeant is just looking at the guy, and the lieutenant goes, you have no idea who I'm talking about, do you? He goes, no, sir. He goes, it was you. And, like, for the first moment, he realized the impact that he had. And I thought, what a perfect definition of what biblical humility is all about. You know, we are not doing it so that people look at us. We're not doing it because we're checking off things on the list. We follow Jesus. We passionately pursue that relationship and that connection with him. And you know what flows out of that? Beautiful fruit. You know, and, and I think when we get to heaven, the things we're going to be most rewarded for are probably kind of like that staff sergeant. We're going to be standing before the Lord, and the Lord's going to say, you know, this neighborhood was reached, and, and these people's lives were touched, and this individual who was on the edge of getting up uh, was given courage and strength, and, and one person did that, and we're going to look at the Lord, and we're going to go, well, you know, who was that? He's going to go, it was you. It was you, because you followed me. You know, and I, I hope I have that same heart as that staff sergeant did. You just do your job, our job is what? To be a witness, to be an example of who Jesus is, 
and let him take care of everything else. So simple, isn't it? But yeah. it eludes us. No, it, absolutely. And, <clears throat> you know, just to kind of put a verse to everything you're saying, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, he says, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Son of God, we are being transformed into his same image from glory to glory. What is the mechanism of this transformation? It's not necessarily, it's not that I'm telling you don't look at your life and look at your actions and behaviors and work on things. Of course you should do that. But the prime mechanism of transformation is actually beholding Jesus. It's looking at him. And this verse, by the way, is a two-edged sword. Because what Paul is saying is we're becoming something. Right. And whatever you're becoming has a lot to do with who you're beholding. And so utilizing your example really quickly, the reason why the lieutenant was changed is because he beheld something. He looked at something in the staff sergeant as being so attractive and beautiful that it moved him. It moved him to emulate what he saw. And in the same way, again, we're beholding things all the time, and we're emulating them. And whatever you're beholding, whatever you're spending your time fixating your mind upon, looking at as your examples, these things are moving you. And they're either moving you beneath your knowledge, Meaning you wake up and you're like, how did I become this person? How did I end up becoming just like my mom, my dad, you know, these people that I hate? You know, how did I become like them? And it happens slowly over time. It's because you hated the behavior, but you didn't know what it took to make them that way. And so you fell into the same errors and you looked up to the same examples and you fell into the same traps. So whatever we're beholding, whatever we're looking up to and aspiring to become, that is what is moving your character. It's what's transforming you into something else. And you will either be, as C.S. Lewis put it, you're either becoming more and more like an angel of heaven reflecting God's glory or a demon of hell reflecting his wrath. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's just this beautiful picture that I think sums it up in Luke chapter 6 and, uh, and verse 40. Uh, 43, it says, For a good tree, Jesus speaking here, does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks." You know, that is such a powerful passage of Scripture because what God is looking for isn't works, it's fruit. And Chuck Smith had a great analogy about all of this. You know, when we think of works, what do you think of? You think of going to a factory and pounding out widgets every day, and it's just monotonous, and you do your thing, and, and you know, you, you, you produce something, you know, by the sweat of your brow. But when you think about fruit, what do you think of? Well, first of all, you think about a beautiful orchard. You know, you're not inside some dusty, dank, smelly, smoky factory. You're out in the, 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 the great outdoors. And when you think about a fruitful tree, first of all, a fruitful tree is beautiful. It's going to be leafy. It's going to be healthy. But the other thing about a fruitful tree that he pointed out is this. If you put a tree in good soil and it gets water and sunshine, it's going to bear fruit. It doesn't have to struggle to bear fruit. It bears fruit. And, and this was the great line he said, I never heard grunting coming out of an orchard. 
You know, like the lemon tree going, oh, I got to do a lemon here. Oh, 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 man, I'm exhausted. No, they produce lemons because it's in their nature to do so. And so, you know, as Psalm 1 talks about, you know, being like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in season. What kind of person is that? The one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. You know, this beautiful abiding relationship that God wants to give to us. And this beautiful angel that we've seen here in Revelation chapter 10 is a reflection of Jesus. Why? Because he's been beholding Jesus since the time he was created. And I'm sure angels have a more fast-forward transformation to what God created him to be. We're all works in progress. As we mentioned, we do the three steps forward, two steps back samba through this world. Sometimes we get discouraged. But believer, don't get discouraged. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. It isn't like God saying, all right, try to be like my son and good luck. We'll check on your progress a little later. Man, that's no help to me at all. I, I, that's scary to me. I, there's no way I could ever do that. But when I just abide in the love of Jesus, when I let him love on me, I can't give out of an empty bucket. When I ask him for the filling of his Holy Spirit, when I allow the word of God to dwell in me richly, you know, it's just this beautiful, beautiful fruit comes out of my life. And it's not striving and it's not struggling you know, people say, oh, you're a pastor. That's so difficult. That's so hard. Yeah, it would be impossible unless God called me to do it. But, you know, I, I, I hear sometimes pastors crying the blues about how tough it is. And, you know, and I don't get me wrong. Ministry is not for cowards. It, it, it's, it's tough stuff sometimes. But I tell people, you know, I feel like the kid who grew up to be a baseball player. You know, I can hardly believe I get paid to do what I love. Now, now, don't tell the financial board that. <laughs> but that is, to me, just this, this joy uh, of serving the Lord. I think about loving my wife, Pam. You know, it's not like, okay, you know, I'm supposed to love this woman because I told, made a vow and everybody expects me to and stuff. No, when I see Pam thriving and growing and, and being fulfilled and happy, there's no greater happiness and joy I have in my heart. And suddenly I realized something, wow, you know, like I'm fulfilling this scripture about husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church when he gave himself for her. You know, Jesus didn't pull his arms and go, oh, I got to give myself for them. Oh my gosh. No, he did that because he really, really, really loves us. And there's no substitute you'll ever find in religion for that. These angels, this mighty angel that you see here, and we'll get into next week, you know, what he says and, and uh, you know, the mystery of God and what this little book is all about and why the seven thunders, uh, you couldn't uh, repeat what they said. And if anybody says to you, they know what the seven thunders said, uh, run, don't walk out of there. We're going to talk about all of these things. But for our purpose tonight, man, you know, I guess we could call this study, be touched by an angel. Be touched by this angel's example. This angel is called mighty in the eyes of God. Why? Not just because he's powerful. He can stand on the seashore and on the, the land and, you know, raise his hand to the sky and just dominate the earth. He's mighty because he has been mightily transformed into the image and likeness of his creator. And his joy and his fulfillment in life 
is giving glory to that creator who is, 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 is everything. And like you said, you know, we, we don't understand why those mighty angels just look on God and just dig on him like forever and never get tired of saying holy, holy, holy. You know, that's because we're so grounded here on earth in our own selfishness. But the more we taste and see that the Lord's good, that blessed, supremely happy is the man who puts his trust in him. The more we're going to see what we were created for, the more we're going to see that there's a lot of things we invest ourselves in life that are just dead ends and maybe we need to cut those out. The more we're going to see that where we are relationally, where we are personally, where we are financially, where we are career-wise, everything is put together by God as an awesome opportunity to reflect who he is in this world. And if we can just grasp that, man, we're going to be getting somewhere. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us in this scripture. Just, it's just amazing how you take this study in a way I never thought it would go. But maybe that's uh, definitely for the best. But Lord, speak to us about where we are. Speak to us about our need for transformation. We're just tired of religious occupation, a transformation that changes our hearts and our lives, that, that shows us uh, where the empty cisterns are that will hold no water that we've gone back to time and again and, and beckons us to the living water of your spirit, Lord. Uh, that, that's where we want to be. We want to be taking in your bread of life. We want to be drinking that living water. We want, Lord, as uh, well-loved sheep to stay close to you, our great shepherd. Uh, make us lie down in that green pasture. Lead us beside that still water and restore our souls to the purpose you created us for from the beginning. We love you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.